Hello everyone, Dr. Chris Martinson of Peak Prosperity here back with you. Today we have another exciting chapter of the Crash Course. Today we're talking about inflation. Everybody's talking about inflation here in 2023, and we're going to be talking about it for many, many years to come because it's a very human thing when people get in charge of and then run their money systems poorly. Inflation, as we're going to see, is not some miracle that happens on some astronomical schedule that we can't predict. It is a active policy. So let's go right there and talk about inflation now. And this is it. Chapter four. This is an important one. You're all going to want to make sure you really grasp what's in this particular chapter. Now, begins with this. What is inflation, right? You read about it all the time. Often it's presented to you as if it's uh, the price of milk going up or the price of car insurance going up. It's the prices of things going up. And in fact, you know, that's actually the full on explanation of it here in Investopedia. They say inflation, it's a rise in prices, which can be translated as the decline of purchasing power over time. Now let's unpack that a little bit because they're very important concepts here, but this is still kind of obfuscating. This is hiding the actual cause of inflation. So I just want to make sure that we're actually looking at this clear as can be and uh, sharing in a sense of what inflation is, because if you know what inflation actually is, you can define it. Well, that puts you in a very rare elite class of people to start with. Second of all, you can begin to predict where things are going. Third of all, you can begin to take actions to protect yourself and your wealth, your loved ones from the ravages of inflation. So this is how it's commonly sort of presented. Well, you know, I have, I'm going to buy an apple and let's just say, you know, um, I value an apple and an orange about the same. They both cost the same. Let's say they're each a dollar. Okay. So apples equal oranges. They're both a dollar. That's how we would value these things. An apple's worth a dollar. An orange is worth a dollar. They are now, that's how we would set it. Now, what would we say if all of a sudden we woke up one day and we discovered it was $10? To buy each of these things would we would the value of that apple to you be 10 times higher than it was the day prior so if this is day one and this is day two is that apple 10 times more valuable is it worth 10 times as much no it's still an apple how about the orange same story and i could do this for literally any good or service or product out there whatever they cost is not the value you receive from them price is what you pay values what you receive. Well, the value of an apple is always going to be the value of an apple. That's pretty much it. Whether it costs 10, 1, or a million dollars is kind of irrelevant. The value, the ultimate value is in the thing itself. So this is an important concept because inflation is presented as if the price of the apple went up, right? That's how it's presented. That's not actually what happened. This is how it's presented in the newspaper all the time. Hey, the price of apples went up. But that's not what happened. What happened was the purchasing power of your dollar went down. It took more dollars to do the same thing. That's a decrease. The dollar has lost purchasing power. So when we talk about inflation, that's not accurate because it sets this frame in our minds that inflation is the price of things going up as if something's happening to the apple. Nothing's happening to the apple. It's still an apple. What's happening is to this thing we call currency or money. It's not really money because it violates. Remember, we talked about in chapter two about banking and money and all that other stuff that that um, that 
the money system should always be a store of value, right? In a unit of account, right? Should be fungible, right? Well, when your dollar or whatever your currency is, is declining, it's kind of violating the store of value precept. It's not storing the value well at all. The thing that's spongy in this story is not the apple. It's not growing larger or smaller. It's just an apple. The dollar, now that's your rubber yardstick, right? It's changing. And of course, this yardstick is shrinking all the time. So it takes more of those yardsticks to measure up to the apple. So that's what inflation really is. I just want to frame that so we could flip that a little bit because we need to start thinking about, you need to start thinking about inflation, not as something that's happening to the prices of things. It is something that is happening to your money. And that begins to diagnose and explain and help us understand exactly what's happening. And then wander over to the data and predict where this is going in the future. This gets especially important when we start to wrap energy and resources into our money system. Okay. Now we've already shown in a prior chapter that the money system in the United States and by extension, most of the world is a very, um, it's an exponential money system. The charts all go whoosh like this, right? They're hockey stick charts. And that has huge implications for what things are going to cost. What is the price of an apple going to be in the future is largely dependent on the decisions that are being made and taken today in terms of debts, deficit spending, money printing, all the rest. So that's why this is such a vital chapter to really ingest and bring in and understand. All right. So turns out that whether we valued this at a dollar or we valued it at $10 or $1,000 is irrelevant. The orange is still an orange. The apple is still an apple. It's the currency unit itself that is changing. So that means that we have to go back to our monetary policy and we look at how much money is being created. And that gives us a sense of what inflation or rising prices we're going to experience, or let's flip that, how much the purchasing power of our dollar is going to be shrinking over time, how much less a dollar is going to be worth over time. But it leads us to be able to make this one statement. This is a Milton Friedman statement, um, famous economist. Inflation is everywhere and always a monetary phenomenon. That means that if you want to understand inflation, you just have to understand monetary policy. Because remember, money itself and debt by extension, those are just claims on real things. The apple or the orange in this case, that's the real thing. The money's a claim on it. If you're making lots of claims, but you don't have that many new things coming out, well, the price of those things is going to seem to go up, but that's not what's actually happening. Again, we flip that. What's actually happening is the orange is still an orange, but the money is shrinking in its purchasing power. So it's an important concept. John Maynard Keynes said, by inflation... The government may secretly and unobserved confiscate the wealth of the people and not one man in a million will be able to detect the theft. Absolutely spot on. So what does he mean by this? Though? That's a pithy statement. That's uh, John Maynard Keynes there. And this was in um, something called the Economic Consequences of Peace, the Unseen Hand, page 57. By inflation, the government may secretly and unobserved confiscate the wealth of the people and not one man in a million will detect the theft. How do you confiscate the wealth of the people without them un detecting that? That, that seems tricky because if you tax people, boy, they, they get that right away and nobody likes that. That's why inflation has often been called the hidden tax. It's there. A tax is the government reaching in and taking your wealth 
by force if necessary, right? Or under threat of force. Whereas inflation is this hidden tax. It just stealthily, it just takes from you. That's what we're going to discuss today. Because once you understand this process, then you're in a position again to protect yourself, to know where things are going, to understand the mechanisms of what's happening. And then you won't be, you'll be among that one man in a million. Because you will now, after watching this chapter, be able to detect the theft. It's not all that hard. It could be taught, should be taught in schools, but isn't. And we could all conjecture as to why such vital, important things like we're discussing here today are not part of average standard curricula. This is, everybody ought to talk about this. This should just be absolute 100% a topic of conversation because I would like to have a say in when I'm being taxed surreptitiously or overtly. I would like to have a say in that. And by inflation, we get no say in it whatsoever. And so we should understand it a little better and then talk about it. All right. So let's go through a little bit of history now. I love the way history frames this. So this is a really incredible chart series we're going to step through here. 300 years of inflation history in the United States. Right now, we're just looking from 1665 to 1776. This is 111 years. For 111 years, the general price level of things in the United States, let's sort of eyeball that at five. In 1665, cost five, five to buy a basket of goods, right? So that could be, I don't know, the clothes you wear, the food you eat, the transportation you're going to, you know, use all of that cost five. And after 110 years or 11 years of building the nation. And I mean, a lot's happened since 1665 to 1776 cities have sprung up, roads have been constructed and you know what? Things still cost five. Can you even imagine that, that a hundred years from now, 110, 111 years from now, things would cost the same as they do today. You and I both know you can't even count on that to next year, sometimes not even next month, and depending on which country you're in, not even the next hour, prices are just constantly going and adjusting upwards. Now, that's extraordinary. So this proves one thing right away off the bat. Inflation is not an automatic feature of life. Like, if we have a money system, we're gonna have inflation. Mm -mm. That's just because of how and where and when you grew up. You grew up during a time when inflation was epidemic, but that wasn't always the case. It's an important concept. All right, um, but then something happened, um, and, and we'll get to that in a second. But first, uh, right, uh, so here's the reason for 100 years of price stability. The United States was on a hard money currency unit. And by the way, it didn't have its own money system. It was using um, shillings. It would, it would minted a few, but it was using shillings and things like that from from Great Britain at the time, or it was using Spanish dollars, or it was using the silver and or gold coinage of other countries as, as a starting point, and then it began to develop some of its own. Here's a pine tree shelling from 1652. Um, got a pine tree on the back, made out of silver. And so when you're on a hard money system, a gold money, gold or silver back system, those tend to be very non-inflationary. And so that's the system the United States was on during that whole period of time. Now, um, here's an example where they say, uh, where there's a paper representation. So there's a bank somewhere and in that bank, there is a, a treasure trove of gold and silver. In this case, this is New Hampshire. And they said, this is uh, paid to the bear one Spanish milled dollar if they hold this thing, right? So this piece of paper would entitle you, this is a claim check on money. This wasn't money itself, but it acted like money. It, the real money was the gold or silver, in this case, silver, that would be somewhere in a warehouse, in a bank, and however it's being stored, and you could go and claim that with your little claim check here, okay? 
What is a Spanish milled dollar? This is a Spanish milled dollar right here. It had a very known weight and a very known purity. That's why they were so valued in, in, in trade and as money because known quantity, known purity, known weight, all that stuff. And then that makes it trustworthy and valuable. So this was a Spanish milled dollar. And you might have heard, maybe you've watched, I don't know, Pirates of the Caribbean. You heard about, you know, a pieces of eight. And or you might have heard the saying before, shave and a haircut, two bits, right? What, what, what do those mean? These are very archival terms that come from this that once upon a time, these pieces of eight would be cut, hacked, chopped into pieces. It was totally legal. People did it all the time. You could cut it in half, then you'd have a half dollar. You could cut it into quarters, then you'd have a quarter dollar, or you could cut it into eight pieces like you see down there in the lower right. That was a piece of eight. And by the way, each one of those was a bit. And if you had two bits, you had a quarter. So that's why two bits is slang for a quarter dollar. It comes all the way back from the time when people used these as money and would then actually chop them up. Because remember, one of the things you want your money to be, three three features it should have one, it should be divisible, right? So this is divisible money. You could either have a whole dollar or you chop it up, get pieces of eight. Um, and that's a little bit of history there. Okay, so the United States, 111 years, no inflation. But then, oops, war comes along, the Revolutionary War. And what happens next? Well, the price levels skyrocketed. They absolutely, for the first time in the nation's history, we saw massive inflation in the United States because of that Revolutionary War thingy right there. And you can see the price levels almost doubled, right? So that's a big deal, 100% inflation over a very few set of years. And so that's what happened. And by the way, in order to fund the war, the United States Congress began issuing these things called Continentals. And according to a resolution of Congress passed at Philadelphia, February 17th, 1776, this is one third of a dollar, by which they mean a Spanish milled dollar, right? Again. All right. Uh, so that led to this expression, though, which is not worth a continental, a little outdated now, but it was certainly uh, circulating for hundreds of years in the United States. Not worth a continental, meaning not worth a continental dollar. And why did that happen? Because in 1775, quote, Practically at the outset of hostilities, the Continental Congress authorized an issue of $2 million in paper money. But by the end of 1776, $25 million was in circulation and already at a 30% discount relative to its silver Spanish milled dollar weight. By the end of 1777, it was $38 million was in circulation. Now it's a 70% discount. Remember, the money is shrinking. It's losing its purchasing power. Relative to silver, and by the end of 1779, $192 million was in circulation, and $1 in paper money was worth only one or two cents in silver. So it had lost 98 to 99% of its value, and the states then were also issuing their own paper money. Woo! Um, so here's, here's a thing that happens. <clears throat> when it becomes impossible to fund through overt taxation, governments will resort, even our famous founding fathers, will resort to covert taxation that's where you print up paper and you call it money but it's not in the same sense that money some when you have something that's fixed and hard in hard acid gold silver durable like that now you have something that you can't expand or contract very easily without doing hard work like mining it trading for it doing things like that so not worth the continental that's where it comes from and again this is what a continental would have looked like and that would have been worth you know 
a third of a couple of cents, maybe, by the time it would be redeemed. All right, but then look what happened. Look what happened next. Right after the Revolutionary War, right, price levels went back down again. It's like they went high, but then the nation got its footing again, went back onto the hard currency system, wrote things like the Coinage Act of 1794, enshrined that nothing but gold or silver shall actually be money, put it in the Constitution, in, in essence, made an act around it. And so this is what happened. Inflation went back down. Now we're back to that happy state of things costing five on this chart. All right. And then there was this war of 1812 to 1814. Oops, you know, created a lo another little burst of inflation. And that's bad one. That, that one went up pretty high right there. But that war went uh, and passed. And when it was over, you know what happened? A long period of returning back to things costing five again. So now we're, you know, from 1665 to 1860, we're almost 200 years. We have a few bouts of inflation. They're temporary and they revert. They return. Prices come back down. A shirt cost as much 200 years ago as it does today. A horse costs just as much 200 years ago as it does today in these terms right here. That's extraordinary, right? I can't even imagine what it would be like to have been alive during a period of time when you could earn money, save money, and be confident that it would be worth something in a few years. Now you don't have to do complicated stuff like, oh, I got to have my money in the markets. It's got to be earning an interest rate because I know there's going to be inflation. And what am, what's college even going to cost when my kids get there? And I'll, you go through all that stuff, right? Because you can't trust that your money is going to be there. In fact, the only thing you can trust is you know your money's going to be worth less in the future. And that, my dear friends, is an act of policy. That's what the Federal Reserve is openly trying to do. And they tell you about this all the time, right? The Federal Reserve says that they have a stated inflation goal of 2%. Now, remember back to the inflation chapter earlier on, sorry, the exponential chapter earlier on, using our handy rule of 72, we can discover that if something is inflating at just, just 2% a year, in 36 years, it's going to be worth half as much. Because we divide 2 into 72, we come up with a number that looks like 36. So that means every 36 years, the, the money's worth half as much. Contrast that, if you will, with an era where every for 200 years, your money was safe and it was sound, right? Totally different environment. You can make different decisions. It's a much easier world to live in. There's not as much franticness around having to have your money at work all the time. And that is part of the game of why our current system loves inflation, why the Federal Reserve tries actively, openly, admittedly, to create inflation, why banks love inflation, why Wall Street loves inflation. They all love inflation because it forces you to play their game. And that game is rigged in their favor. Of course it is. They're the house. They set the house rules. They'd be stupid if they did not set the rules in their favor. So that's what they do, of course. All right, then, uh-oh, another war, uh, civil war this time. And what happens? Another big old bout of inflation. Inflation roars back. Kind of cool piece of history there. This is a United States dollar at the time from the north, a treasury note. The back is green. And they had to use a special dye to create that green back. And the reason was they ran out of the black dyes, which were being manufactured in plants down in the south. So to save the black dye, they switched to this green dye, which was actually made out of a serpentine mineral that was mined in a place called Chester, Massachusetts. Very cool piece of history on that. But that's why it's called the greenback. Maybe you've heard the greenback. So they started to print up a lot of these things again to pay for the war. It's just what you do. 
And then after that, of course, inflation came down again. But then there's World War I and then World War II. And now you start to see something after World War I, something new happens in this story. Whereas in every single war period prior, we saw a return of inflation, of price levels back down. There was a period of deflation after the inflation to bring price levels back down to where they were. After World War I, that didn't happen. Prices went up. They stayed up. There was a little bit of, um, let me see if I can put this on here. Get my drawing tool out. Uh, let's do a highlighter. You see this, this, um, this little decline right here? That's actually the Great Depression right there. I've marked in yellow. And that, maybe I could use, um, let me see if I can put it up with my laser pointer. Yeah, right here in this little spot, what I'm pointing to right here, ding. This is the Great Depression because that's 1925, that's 1935. So right here, that little decline. So if it wasn't for the Great Depression, these prices almost certainly would have stayed up. And the reason for that is because in 1913, this institution called the Federal Reserve which is a private cartel of banks, was uh, put into motion. And when they got put into motion, their whole job was to prevent prices from going back down again. Their whole job was to stoke inflation. Their whole job was to create lots and lots of credit creation, lots of money creation. The whole idea here was, and maybe it started out innocently enough, but was, hey, if we can keep this economic engine stoked, we'll just keep growing forever. And we do that by just flooding the country, the banking system, with businesses, with more and more currency, with more credit, with more debt. So that began the, this whole thing, and that was a brand new experiment. There were a lot of people back at the time who were very unhappy with the creation of the Federal Reserve, some very prominent people, because they knew that this was a whole new game we were about to get on. The country had been growing and very prosperous and very stable and uh, a very lovely place to live for a long time. But once you start monkeying with the money system, you start to introduce the capability to have all kinds of insidious by effects, bystander effects that come into play. Because your money is your social contract. It is the glue. It is the agreement. It is the relationship that we can all hold. It is our, is it our trust at a distance with each other. And when somebody is in charge of that, and it's not entirely transparent who or what they are, or what their motives are, and they begin to then erode that. They're not just eroding the value of the dollar in the case of the United States. They are eroding the entire social contract. Hop, skip, and a jump. And here we are in 2023 talking about things like the massive decline in trust in institutions with each other, rats in a cage fighting each other, all the transgenderism, the fact that our you know medical system completely abandoned and, and betrayed people on and on and on those are all actually by corollary effects that begin when you start by undermining our social contract and the most important social contract we have is money so that's why i care about this why i want to talk about inflation as much as i do okay so back to this chart world war one boom price levels go up stay up come down a little bit during the great depression world war ii okay now we're back up again then what happens well, now we find out for the first time in this 300-year series here, which is a 310-year series, starting from, whoops, all the way back here, right? As we track all the way through this whole time, prices have been very stable and inflation has not been sticky. After World War I, World War II, we start to see now prices are sticky. Inflation is now a somewhat permanent feature of the landscape. So that by the time we get to the Vietnam War, it's already true that this is the general trajectory of the country, that inflation is now a thing that's permanent, and it seems to be rather extraordinary. 
and new. It's a new feature of the system. All right. So what can we say about this up to this part of the story? And then we'll, we'll finish with its dramatic conclusion. All wars are inflationary, period, full stop. Always have been, always will be. If you see a war going on, there's going to be inflation happening. So there's been an enormous amount of inflation of late because, well, lots of war going on right now. And why is that? Why, why are wars themselves always inflationary? Well, first up, you have to build a lot of very expensive stuff, right? And that feels like economic activity because sure enough, you know, good, hardworking people who built the second rivet strut piece on the back tail of that thing for extraordinary amounts of money, right? You know, that, that's a machinist, you know, that's a, that's a guy or gal with a job and, and a family and all that, right? So, so you spend the money to build these amazing things. We build these extraordinarily gifted bombs that can do awesome things coming in from who knows where and hitting perfectly accurately. But what's at the end result of that? All that amazing technology and economic activity, uh, an explosion. And that's the end of the story, right? So the money is spent, but there's no downstream. This is not a capital investment in the wealth of a nation. You build a bridge and lots of economic activity is opened up and is facilitated by having that bridge. If you build a factory, same thing. When you build a bomb and you blow something up, not only does the bomb get blown up, but probably the thing that you blew up if you were got you had good target targeting, it got blown up. So that's what we see is just 100%, uh, I'll say if there's 100 units of money creation, there's like minus five units of economic creation at the end of the whole thing. And, and so that's why wars tend to be very inflationary because you're spending a lot, but not on anything that you would call a sound investment, right? It's not an investment at all in, in any sense of the word. Okay. So, and then, uh, August 15th, 1971, something happened. You've heard about it a lot. We've talked about it before. That's the date that president Nixon got on TV and temporarily suspended gold convertibility of us dollars that was called slamming the gold window right so gold was removed as a monetary asset and now what are dollars backed by at that point <clears throat> a little bit later than that they got backed by oil and the military might of the united states but remember military spending's kind of inflationary so what happened was gold was finally removed as a tether because that was just too much pressure see all that rising price down there you know between 1945 and 1965 too much rising pressure. There's like lots of dollars are being created and printed, lots of inflation, and countries are starting to ask for their gold back and converting their dollars into gold and taking the gold home. And so that was no bueno. That got stopped. And so what happens after you remove your final tether from your currency system? Well, that's easy. That's what happens right there. And that only brings us up to 2008. Um, obviously things have gotten a little more inflationary since then. So I've extended the chart and ah, there we go. So now we can see the long sweep of price levels in the United States from 1665 to 2023. And I think you can see the inflection point of this particular hockey stick chart. That happens to be August 15th, 1971, when the United States finally said, "Nah, we don't want any restraints. We just want to be able to print as much money as we like, or as we want, or as we need in order to do whatever we want, right? It's much easier because that rising red line right there, there's two things I need to say about it. First, everybody who's in power today, everybody who's in power at the Federal Reserve, in Congress, in the Senate, wherever else, at the IMF, BIS, that they've grown up on that sloped line. To them, that's 
level terrain. That's just how the world works. There's always inflation. Do you want this much or that much? That's the question. Not ever. What would a world be like without inflation? And can we do that? And what are what would be the pros and cons? We're not having that conversation ever. The conversation is always one expert arguing with another over what's the right amount of inflation to have because they all grew up on this line. This is flat terrain to them. So yeah, that that's that's the first thing you need to say about that. Um, the second thing is that this is uh, this is an unsustainable system. This is absolutely guaranteed to break at some point in the future because it's just a math function that says nothing can compound infinitely, but this is a compounding chart. So prices are rising on top of prices. And so we're going to have lots and lots of inflation as we go forward until something breaks. That's what we're headed towards. Okay, so... <clears throat> Now, when we look at this, though, a question got raised earlier, and it was about, I snuck it in there, um, and it was about purchasing power. So let's think about this for a second. If I give you a $100 bill, you have $100 of purchasing power. If the government gives me a $100 bill, I have $100 of purchasing power. The money I gave you, I had to work to get that money, so I can chase that back and show you that I had to do something value was perceived or created. And then I, my, I received that extra hundred dollars and that's my purchasing power, which I hand to you. When the government prints a hundred dollars, that's still a hundred dollars of purchasing power. Where does that come from? Where exactly does that come from? Cause when the government prints this money up and gives it to somebody like somebody's working on making that left strut bolt hole for the F 35, I talked about earlier when the government pays that person hundred dollar bill, it's giving them purchasing power, but they just printed that purchasing power out of thin air. Where did, where did that purchasing power actually come from? Cause, cause that person goes and spends that money out the store and, and does stuff with it. So it's real purchasing power. Now, if you could just print true purchasing power out of thin air, none of us have to work. You just print money, hand it out. Everybody has purchasing power and it works. No, 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 no. Remember money is a claim on goods and services. Money is a claim on real things, but the government just made some claims out of thin air. So that doesn't work. It works in a closed system where everybody's working and building and increasing value and doing value added things. And then you can hot swap your purchasing power within and amongst each other. But what happens when player two enters the game and just creates a whole lot of purchasing power out of thin air? That's where inflation comes from. And so now we can begin to understand and, and, and decode this statement. By inflation, the government may secretly and unobserved confiscate the wealth of the people and not one man in a million will detect it. And it's hinged on this thing, right? Which is inflation can be seen as a decline of purchasing power over time, meaning your dollar is shrinking. It takes more of them to equal an old one. But where did that purchasing power come from? So when the government prints that $100 bill, hands it to me, I go and take that out and I purchase something. Where did that purchasing power actually come from? It's an accounting identity, meaning it had to come from somewhere. This is a, a this is like a, um, a accounting balance sheet, right? Assets, liabilities, you know, the two columns have to match or something's wrong. So when the government, let's do it on a purchasing power. If there's, if the government's creating purchasing power on this side of the ledger, then it has to be coming from that side of the ledger. Well, what's on that side? How does this balance out? Um, it balances out because when the government prints money and spends it into circulation, what it's really doing is 
For every dollar that it does that with, it's stealing from every other dollar that's already out there stored in somebody's bank account or in somebody's treasury account or something like that. So when, let's say there's a, but this is why it's very secret and unobserved. So let's say there's $10 trillion out there in bank accounts and the government prints one more extra dollar. Are you going to notice one ten trillionth missing from your account? You are not going to notice that, right? And so that's the process by which this is a hidden tax because what happens is the purchasing power of every bank account out there shrinks and shrinks and shrinks and shrinks and shrinks and it does it slow enough and carefully enough and subtly enough that nobody seems to notice it. Not one man in a million can diagnose it, right? But it's theft. It's a taxation. That's why it's called the hidden tax. When the government prints money, what it's doing is it's printing real purchasing power and the accounting identity says that it's removing that purchasing power equivalent offset from all the other accounts that are already out there. And that's why if you keep money in a bank account and earn zero interest and inflation is 5%, next year you can buy 5% less. Where did that go? Who took it from you? What law was passed that said, Chris, your account can only buy 95 cents worth of what it used to be able to buy for every dollar this year. What, what happened? Right? That's the story. That's why this is so important. Um, and this is why this is something that I just really needed to go over with you. So a couple key concepts here that emerge from this chapter. The first is that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. It's an act of policy. Somebody decides that they're going to overprint money or overspend money at the government level, and that creates the inflation. We could also see it as a deliberate act of policy when it involves war, when it involves the Federal Reserve having an inflation target that they would prefer to see. They'd like to see 2% or 3%. They've hinted, wink, wink, that they might be able to live with 4%. Rule of 72, 4%. Um, let's see, that goes in one... Yeah, 12. Oh, that means every 13 years, your money's going to be worth half as much at 4% inflation. Because 4 divided into 72, 13. Is that right? No. 4 goes in 1. Oh, no. 30, 40, 30, uh, 18. Yep. So this is just, it's just an absolute, it, it's a policy. It's an act of policy. Okay. We've seen this policy many times, okay? History's full of this policy, right? I've just seen it tons of times, right? Here's a woman in the famous Weimar Germany um, inflationary period from 1918 to 1924, just shoveling currency notes into the furnace because that's the cheapest way to heat the house at that point in time. Here is a picture of somebody holding up a stack of 100 um, Venezuelan bolivars. Uh, that's how much a dollar's worth of those would be. Um, once upon a time... They, they were a lot closer to parity, but that's a stack. But that was then. And then a little later, they had to hold up a this size stack to equal that $1. But today, we would have to hold up 20 of those stacks right there um, and to equal $1 in Venezuela. Because $1 in Venezuela now is 2,606,990 Venezuelan bolivars. Uh, and that could be twice that by the day after tomorrow. Who knows, right? So that's what inflation legit looks like. And it's just, you know, this is uh, in Zimbabwe. We saw the same function happen. We saw it happen. That's again from the Weimar Germany experience. Uh, this is from Yugoslavia in the uh, 80s. So this this happens over and over and over again for the exact same reasons that it always happens. Humans are humans. It's so much easier to print a little today and take the pain tomorrow. 
than to take the pain today. You show me the incentive, I will show you the outcome. It's very clear that over and over and over again, when given a choice between doing the right thing and printing more, people print more. They clip coins, they debase, they um, create the electronic equivalents. It's just how it is. So that's just uh, the nature of the beast. And so turning now to the close of this whole thing, here's the summary of chapter four on inflation. First, 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 inflation is the value of your money going down. It's losing purchasing power. It is not the prices of things going up. The price is the symptom. Symptom of what? Symptom of your money being debased, losing its value. So it's very important to have that first turn of thinking because it changes everything when you realize it's not that apples are becoming more expensive. It's not that cars are becoming more expensive or guitars or cream. It's that your money is going down. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is related to that is that that loss of purchasing power is always, always an act of policy. It's an act of monetary policy. So all the hardship people are experiencing the fact that young people can't buy homes because they've been priced out of them. These are all acts of policy by one generation committed against the next generation. That's my main complaint about the Federal Reserve. They are a reverse Robin Hood organization. They take from the many to give to the few. That's what inflation fundamentally does because it does not hit us all equally. It is a regressive tax, as they say, where inflation hits poor people and middle-class people much harder than rich people. I mean, if their gasoline doubles, no big deal. That's career ending and life ending, you know, lifestyle ending for people who are very poor. So that's, uh, just understand it's a matter of policy. That's why we have so much confusion around it because whoever they are in this story, that includes the media, they're not interested in you having the appropriate context so you can understand where the shocks are really coming from because they want us pointing our fingers at each other. Hey, look, it's that guy up your street who's taking your lifestyle away. No, it's not. It's the people setting the monetary policy. And then finally, uh, all wars are inflationary. All wars. Wars are inflationary. That's just how it is. We are in the middle of a big giant war right now. The United States has been at war basically my entire adult lifetime. So we've seen lots and lots and lots of inflation. Iraq wars, Afghanistan wars, Syrian wars, Libyan wars, now Ukrainian wars, potentially future wars with China, Russia, whatever. They are always, always, always inflationary, so you should be ready for that. But most importantly, as you can see from this big chart down here, inflation is not this magic thing that happens, and it's always a condition of life, that in fact, it's a fairly recent phenomenon in our long sweep of history. And the reason for that is that we have gotten away from sound money, and we now have unsound money. In fact, it's so unsound, I hesitate to call it money. So to discuss all of this in greater detail, we are going to be turning now over to our website at Peak Prosperity. Our members and I will be discussing this chapter and what it actually means in terms of today's current events. And we'll have a long-running conversation about inflation, what it means. And by the way, um, Liz Farah just recently, three days ago, left us this testimony to talk about why she comes by and why she values her Peak Prosperity membership. And she says, quote, it's hard to put a price on the information and peace of mind I receive from being a member. I don't feel at peace because I'm reading good news. I feel relieved that I can come here and be treated like an adult. Thank you sincerely for this labor of love, Liz. You are welcome. And so is everybody else who comes to Peak Prosperity because what we do there is we treat each other like adults. We have context, just like this context that I've provided for you today. And with that context, with that information, with the other rich period people in discussion there, and their rich experience sets, you then surround yourself with other good people who are not 
confused by all of this and are capable of having clear minds and clear hearts. And then we take actions, whatever those actions are for you. That's the three step path for success that we follow at Peak Prosperity. These are very uncertain times. You deserve to have great information, even better people, so that you can take good, well-informed actions to protect you and your family and build your future wealth. With that, I'm Chris Martinson. Thank you very much for listening. It has been a real pleasure to be here with you today. We will see you next time. Bye-bye.